Ken, are we recording? Because if we're not, Jeannie and Steve are going to beat me senseless. Okay, good. Now that we've addressed that. true. Yeah, I better watch what I say. Um, July 5th, 2016. Do your math. Those two. A day that will, in my opinion, live in infamy. Now let me just say, I'm about to mention some political things, but I'm not going to get political. Okay? I am neither endorsing nor condemning any political candidate. I'm playing a little Detective Friday. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. July 5th, 2016, a day that will live in infamy. FBI Director James B. Comey walked into a press conference and confidently maneuvered his six-foot, eight-inch frame to a podium where he was about to address the FBI's investigation of former Secretary of State, now presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's now infamous use of a personal email server to handle State Department communications. Anybody watch this happen? Anybody watch this unfold? For a little over 13 minutes of the 15-minute statement, Director Comey laid out in detail how the FBI had investigated this case, and he gave a vivid description of the work done and the findings that came out of it. In those 13 minutes, Director Comey pieced together a thought pattern that sounded something like this. He said that email chains that passed through Clinton's server, quote, involved Secretary Clinton both sending emails about those matters and receiving emails from others about the same matters, end of quote. Meaning, he noted, matters at top secret slash special access program classification level. That classification level is among the highest in the U.S. government and covering some of the nation's most valued intelligence matters. Comey said dozens of Clinton's other email chains contained emails at lower classification levels as well. And this type of verbal beating continued for much of that 13 minutes and concluded with Comey saying that Clinton and her people had been, and I quote, extremely careless with these classified, highly sensitive emails, painting a picture of a goose that was surely cooked. And then, at 13 minutes and 13 seconds into the press conference, after ripping out every rug from Clinton's defense, calling her a liar without calling her a liar, leaving her clearly marked for prosecution and possible prison time, Comey said these words, In looking back at our investigations into mishandling or removal of classified information, we cannot find a case that would support bringing criminal charges on these facts. And I sat there, I was watching it live, I was watching it, and I sat there with my bottom jaw on the floor, thinking, what? He just spent this whole meeting prior to this telling all the reasons why she was going to be prosecuted. And I really thought, did somebody change the channel on me? Am I at a different press conference? Is this a back to the future type of moment? 1.21 gigawatt. 
Did aliens just take over James Comey's body and use him as a ventriloquist dummy? What just happened? I mean, really, I'm really, I'm as stunned as I can be. After the fog of that shock, I heard Comey say something about only the facts matter and he couldn't be prouder to be a part of this organization. And then, without taking a single question from the press he had just addressed, he walked off the stage, off camera, and out of the room. And just like that, Hillary Rodham Clinton was exonerated from crimes she had just been declared to have committed. Yes, she did, but no, she will not pay the price for it. Just like that. Now what in the world does this have to do with Romans 8? In the days since Tuesday, of course, the media, the talking heads, and every Tom, Dick, and Harry with an opinion have expressed their judicial expertise to either defend or eviscerate Comey and or Clinton. But in the midst of it all, most would agree on the basic tenets of what he said. Secretary Clinton did wrong, but charges would not be brought against her. And the range of emotions regarding those tenets varied from one side of the scale to the other. Some people were ecstatic. I'm sure she was. Of course, she probably already knew. Oops, did I say that? Right or wrong, she did wrong, but she's all right. Hmm. How do we feel about that? So now Romans 8. Like the peak of Everest that we've seen from far off, then closer and closer until we stood in the shade of the towering peak, we've inched our way toward this titanic passage. Almost a year ago, we started up Mount Everest, what we're calling Romans, our Romans experience like climbing Mount Everest, and today we set up base camp near the very top of the mountain. Let me tell you, church, it does not get any better than this. Romans 8 is the purest form of the gospel that you will ever see. But you may say, all scripture is inspired, and that is true. And I say a hearty amen to that. All scripture is inspired, breathed out by the very breath of God himself. Yes, yes, yes. But, Alistair Begg said it well when he said, all scripture is inspired, but some scripture is more inspiring than other scriptures. And that's true. Anybody wake up excited to read Who Begat Who in 1 Chronicles? Cannot wait to read the genealogies today. You probably don't do that, right? Nothing wrong with them. They're important. And they are breathed out by God. But some things just grab our hearts. And here, in Romans 8, we have the creme de la creme. I'm telling you, church, if we can grab a hold of and understand by the Spirit's empowering and live by these truths that we're going to cover in Romans 8, which I don't know how long it'll take, we very well may change the world. And I don't say that lightly. Turn your Bibles to Romans 8, if you haven't already. What we're going to read today is Romans 8, 1 through 4. And we will by no means even get close to covering all of that today. If you would, please stand for the reading of the word one more time. Mm. And take just a second, if you would. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, look at it there. If you don't have a Bible and you want to look up here, I want you to just look at that. 
I want you to take that in. I want you to feel the very breath of God breathe upon you this morning with those words right there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Let me pray. God, I simply ask that You would speak because when You speak, things happen. Holy Spirit, Help us to hear. Help us to understand what is being said this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. What we'll be focusing on today is um, Romans 8, 1, and we won't even finish it. Too rich. Too packed. Too much meat to try to digest in one sitting. In this process, we'll also read the preceding text to set the stage for it. And I have been saying for months that if you don't get Romans 7, then you miss Romans 8 off the map. Context, context, context. A text without a context is a pretext. So, let me back up. Let me recap where we've been. Then we'll set the table for our discussion today by refocusing on 7, 14 through 25. But we have been working through the book of Romans, obviously. And we've looked at uh, our outline here. The, the theme of Romans is how to be right with God in very simple terms. And what we've seen so far is point one, sin, the need for being right with God. Who is a sinner? Everybody. Everybody is conceived in sin is what Scripture says. And you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. And chapter 1, 1 through 320 spelled that out completely. Shut the door, nailed it tight, and shut up everybody in the house of sin. Everybody. Because of Adam's sin. Point two was justification by faith. The means for being right with God. There's one way to be right with God, and that is by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Christ. There is no other way. That was chapter 321 through 425 which moved us into point three, which is blessings, the results of being right with God, starting in chapter five, moving all the way to the end of chapter eight. And like I said, we are that's where we're at right now. Through that process, we have looked at Asian Station. It's been a while since you heard Asian Station, right? But expiation is God taking the guilt of our sin away from us. Propitiation is Him pouring out His wrath upon Christ, who became our propitiation when He absorbed our sins on His body on the cross, God punished our sins in Him and propitiated Himself and propitiated us in the process. Propitiation is God taking the wrath against our sin out on the person of Christ. Imputation is Him giving us the righteousness of Christ. We were imputed Adam's sin. We're also imputed Christ's righteousness by faith. Which leads us to a state of justification. We have the right to stand in God's presence. How to be right with God? Justification. 
Then we start on the process of sanctification, which is not the process of you earning your salvation or making God happy. God is completely pleased with you. That's what justification was about. Sanctification is the process of working that out, little by little, inch by inch, moment by moment, fall after fall. Sanctification, which leads us to a final state of salvation before the foundation of the world we were saved, at one point in time we were saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved. That's important to realize. Okay, So that's Asian Station. And all of this revolves around our union with Christ. And we'll talk about that more next week, what it means to be in Christ, because we won't get there today. In Christ is probably the biggest phrase in Scripture. But what Romans has told us is that we have been made one with Christ. We have been in union with Christ when we are justified. We are literally placed in Christ. We have been crucified with Him. We will be raised with Him. In one way, we've been raised with Him. In another way, we will be raised with Him so that we might walk in newness of life now. This all has a purpose. How does it work out? We're almost done with the review. Stay with me. No, believe, reckon, do. Somebody needs to write that song, I'm telling you. No believer can do good for me and good for you. There, I got you started. I get, I get partial writing credits. So. You've got to know the truth. You've got to believe it. You've got to reckon it into your account. Consider it is what the ESV says. I love the word reckon, though. I won't go away from it. And then you've got to do it. So, no believe, reckon, do. So, y'all be walking around slapping your knee the rest of the day. No believe, reckon, do. No believe, reckon. Yeah. Okay, we'll just have to edit that part out of the message, but it's all right. And quickly, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 tie together really well. Chapter 4 talked about our justification by grace through faith. Romans 5 told us that we have peace with God. You say, well, I don't know that I need peace with God. Well, you do because the wrath of God resides on us before we have peace with God. And if we have peace with God, once we're justified, that changes everything. Part of what we'll talk about today Chapter 6 showed us that we're free from and dead to sin. Chapter 7 said we were dead to the law. We, had, we died to the law. Why? So that we may be joined to another, so that we may bear fruit. You cannot bear fruit for God through the law. So you had to die to the law. And that's what chapter 7 said that we did. We died to the law. And now we're in Romans 8. which <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm sitting in Starbucks yesterday finishing this message, and I want to jump up on the table and say, Do you all know what I'm writing here? They're like, sit down, sir. You've had dark roast, haven't you? <laughs> yes, but that's not the point. <clears throat> do you know what I'm writing? Okay, so what I want to do is I want to set the tone for Romans 8. Um, if you'll scroll through with me here, Ken, I'd appreciate it instead of me hitting this button. I want to read this because this is so vital to understanding what we're about to go through in Romans 8. Romans 7, 14 through 25, just listen. For we know that the law is spiritual... But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So, now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, 
But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I want to read that last sentence again. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And we spent a whole Sunday talking about why we believed this passage in particular was talking about a believer, not a pre-converted person. Okay, so quickly let's remember where we've been here in this passage. The law is good and it is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh which causes problems. I agree with the law inside, but on the outside I do things contrary to the law. And in doing so, I confirm the law is good and that nothing good dwells in my flesh. I want to do the good that the law prescribes, but I can't in my flesh. And the problem isn't with the law, it's with sin, which lives in my flesh. And that makes me a wretched man, a tormented man, a tortured man who is doing the very things he doesn't want to do. Who will deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because since Jesus came, I don't do bad stuff anymore. Woohoo! I don't sin anymore. Right? No. Read verse 25 again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now I'm telling you, if this book of Romans, or the Bible itself, ended here, we would be of all people most to be pitied. And for whatever reason, the chapter division cuts a deep gully here. R.C. Sproul says, whoever separated out these chapters and verses in the Bible period must have been riding on a horse, and every time he hit a bump, verse, 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 and it makes sense. Why in the world would you separate this chapter here? And by the way, if you're thinking, well, it's the Bible. It's, it's a... Chapters and verses are not inspired, by the way. Those weren't put in until the 15th century sometime. So don't, don't, don't goose me too bad. Don't, don't, take, don't take it out on me. Try as we may, we just can't unseparate these chapters because we see it in our Bibles. But remember, this was a letter that Paul sent to the Christians in Rome. It came as one work with no chapter or verse divisions. And sometimes these divisions, being uninspired, really miss the mark and mess with our minds. Now, let's see if we can read this without the chapter division in there. Look up on the screen. Go to that next slide, Ken. I think I've got it all on one. Okay. I don't know if you can see that or not. But this is starting in Wretched Man and going to the end of verse 4 in chapter 8 with no division. You ready? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. 
Doesn't that feel different? I want you to see the connection and the repetition up here, if you can see it, in talking about the connection between flesh, law, and sin. You see the connections all up there, right? You see the word flesh, you see the word law, you see the word sin, and it's mentioned over and over again in that passage. And then at the end, he mentions the Spirit, who will become a major focus in the rest of the chapter. Up to this point in Romans, through seven chapters, the Holy Spirit has been mentioned one time. That's about to change. I promise. Actually, I'd say one of the things that separates 7 and 8 in your Bible is a heading. Anybody got a heading in chapter 8 in their Bible? Life in the Spirit. And I love... The, uh, actually, I, lo I say that facetiously. I love the fact that we end chapter 7 talking about sin... And then chapter 8, according to these chapter divisions, talks about life in the Spirit. Let me tell you something. There's no separation here. That's going to be important. Very important. I had to edit that heading out of this passage just to put it up there, by the way, which is not inspired either. But today, I want to focus on one short phrase that ties these two chapters together without any doubt. It's the first part of Romans 8.1 and it is the phrase, there is therefore now no condemnation. The Greek translation of it is ara nin udes katakrima and that doesn't matter really at all. The only reason I put it up is to focus on the four words of the phrase. The English translation can read a few different ways with some versions saying, like our ESV did, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is therefore is all contained in the Greek word ARA. So when you read there is therefore, the Greeks were reading ARA. And it meant therefore. So the Greek literally reads therefore now no condemnation. And that's not overly important, but I want to make sure we see the transition set forth by this therefore. What directly preceded the, the therefore? So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Therefore now no condemnation. Did you get that? Let me condense it a little more. With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Therefore, now, no condemnation. When we ask why this therefore is therefore, it seems like a strange transition from serving the law of God with our flesh to therefore being no condemnation. But it's not that strange. Look at the case Paul has laid out over the first seven chapters. All are sinners. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. In Christ we have peace with God. We're free from and dead to sin. We died to the law so we could be joined to Christ. And in Christ we struggle daily with the sin that dwells in our flesh. The immediate context and the larger context are working in harmony to make sure we see our real state of... Remember this? Anybody remember Simel Hustus et Peccator? At the same time, justified and a sinner. We were born sinners. 
We were justified by the judicial proclamation of God and our sins were paid for by Jesus' work on the cross while our indwelling sin was left indwelling. And Paul says with his flesh he serves the law of sin. Therefore, since all of this is true, since we have been called just by God Himself as a result of the work of Christ, since He has made us right with Himself, not in spite of, but in the midst of our indwelling sin, therefore, now, no condemnation. Yes, I am a wretched man, tortured and battered by my indwelling sin at time, and yes, there is nothing good in my yet-to-be-redeemed flesh. And yes... I am perfectly justified, perfectly hidden in Christ, again, which is our focus next week, in the midst of it all. So therefore, this therefore is there to make sure we know that the conclusion of all this is drawing our attention to what comes next. Not to dwell on our failings and fallings, but to focus on the effective work of Christ in the midst of them. I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Therefore, 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 now no condemnation. Wow! How many of those emails were deleted? So the next word, we've seen therefore, now. Therefore now. John Piper did almost a whole message on the word now. And I get it. We won't. But we could. Just look at the obvious. What is the word now reference? Does it reference space? Everybody went, what? <laughs> the answer is no. No, it does not. Does now reference something physical? No, it references what? Time. So what time does it reference? Present. Now. Sometimes you've got to define a word with the word. Now means now. The Merriam-Webster definition for now is at the present time or moment. Now that's not real profound, but it is very important. With my mind I serve the law of God, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Therefore now, no condemnation. Do you get that? This reinforces our thought that in the midst of our sins and struggles, now, even now, right now, no condemnation. This is not something to be attained to later. This is not referring to a future state of pardon in heaven one day. That'll happen too. It is for the present time or moment. Listen to me, Christian. Listen to me, follower of Christ. Listen to me, church. If you are in Christ now... There is no condemnation. You get that? <laughs> How often is now? It's always now. We live in the now. Now is all the time. It's always now. In the midst of every breath, every thought, every action, every victory, every sin. Therefore now... No condemnation. <laughs> but what about what I've done before? What about my past? Covered by the now. What if I mess up in the future? 
Well, guess what? The future one day is going to become now. And then there will be no condemnation. Can you grab a hold of the freedom of the word now? Now. When is this statement true? Now. God, I am so glad you are Lord over my past and my future, but even more so that you are Lord now. Hallelujah. Now. Check with me next week. Now. Next year. Now. Hallelujah to now. Praise God for now. Therefore, now, no. Now, what does no mean? Daddy, can I have some M&Ms? No. That's one meaning. As a negative answer to an inquiry. But let's suppose the child pushes for a compromise. Daddy, can I have just six M&Ms? No. How about four, Daddy? No. Daddy, how many M&Ms can I have? You can have no M&Ms. Here, no means zero. None. To reach for Merriam-Webster again, no means not any. It also means a negative response. Not at all, to no extent, a negative answer, or a word used to indicate that something is quite the opposite of what is being specified. End of definition. And while all these can be used in this context, I would bring your focus to not any. Not at all, listen, to no extent. How many M&Ms can I have? You can have no M&Ms, not any, none at all. How much condemnation is there for us? Not any, not at all, to no extent. Zero, zip, not a none. Well, what about when I... No, not any. Well, surely when I... No, to no extent. But, 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 no, none, not any, to no extent. Is there any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Now, in the midst of our sins, in the midst of our sinful flesh, in the midst of our failings and fallings, now there is no condemnation to any extent of any kind, of any type, zero, none, none. No condemnation. Well, really, shouldn't I feel a little bit guilty over my sin? If you want to, you know what? Go for it. But you shouldn't. Conviction? Absolutely. Different subject. Therefore, now know what's next, which will be our last for today. Oh, this word. Condemnation. What's all this about? Therefore, now know condemnation. We've said it a lot today, but what is condemnation? The Greek word is katakrima, and it means damnatory sentence. It comes from a word that means to give judgment against, to judge worthy of punishment. 
So with my mind I serve the law of God, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Therefore now, no damnatory sentence, no judgment against, not judged worthy of punishment. Judged by the judge as not receiving a damnatory sentence. The judge says, I will not judge against you, but I will judge for you. The judge in saying there is no, zero zip, not a none punishment for me. And when will there be? Never. Never. As long as now is now, there will be no damnatory sentence, no judgment of punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what if I sin? No punishment for me. Why? Let me tell you why. Because of the gospel. Because my sins have already been fully, completely, totally punished, completely damned in the body of Christ who took my sins upon Himself and bore the full vent of God's wrath for those sins. There is no wrath left for me. None. And if you think that there is, you lessen the work of Christ. You look at the cross and say, that was really good, Jesus but not quite good enough. Because see, what I did is I went out here and, man, I just made a fool of myself and I lied and I clicked a porn site and I'm just a jerk. And the cross wasn't quite enough for that. So I need a little bit of condemnation, if you don't mind. What? That sounds funny, but that's how we live. Jesus Christ took the full wrath of God. There's none left for me. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, became a curse for us. He took our condemnation upon Himself so there is none left for us. It's a powerful thought to think that in the final day, the judge will swing the gavel at my trial and say, not guilty. When referring to me. To be deemed just, right with God on the basis of the work of Jesus. Guys, that's awesome. But don't forget, our text today has said it's not just a future verdict. It is for now. It's for now. If you are a disciple, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ by faith in His finished work, right now, in this moment, there is no condemnation. God does not sit in harsh negative judgment over you, waiting to afflict you or punish you if you do something bad. He knows that you serve the law of sin with your flesh. He knows you're not experiencing a sinless experience right now. But right now, He says, no condemnation over you. And listen, 
for so long, I lived with the fear, and please listen to what I'm about to say, because I would guess you lived there too sometimes. I lived with the fear that bad things were happening to me to one degree or another because God was mad at me because I had sinned. I got a cold, or my car broke down, or I was in an accident, or work wasn't going well. And it was all because of bad things I had done. Sins that I had committed. Let me tell you folks, that's called karma. And that's neither biblical nor from God at all. Karma, listen, does not exist. That's a new age Hindu thing that has no place in Christian thought. You're like, oh, you better watch out. I'm not afraid of karma any more than I'm afraid of Charlie Brown. Get it? <laughs> no. Karma does not exist. And listen, nor does the wrath or the punishment of God if you are His child. He is not up there beating you up because you sinned, nor will He ever be. Get that awful thought out of your head, heart, and life right now. In the midst of your sin, in the moment you commit that sin, in the moments of guilt that come afterward, God's verdict is no condemnation. You get that? Now your sin is not okay. I'm not saying go out and sin. Paul has spent much time leading up to this chapter saying, should we go on and sin so the grace may abound? May it never be, which meant what? No, 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 no. I'll stop with that. But it was as emphatic a no as could be written. God forbid that that would even cross your mind. I am not telling you to go out and live in sin because God don't care. But I am telling you, He's swinging the gavel and saying no condemnation. And you're like, well, that's, that does not compute. Does not compute. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Listen to the words of God and let that shape your life. Not karma. Not the world's opinions. Not your own guilt. Now will God discipline us? You bet your tanned hide He will. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you're a child of God and you can willingly, continually sin without the discipline of God, you're not a child of God. Herb Hodges said it clear. If you can walk in sin and God doesn't beat the hell out of you, you're not His child. You're like, well, isn't that condemnation? No, it is not condemnation. It's discipline. He's not mad at you. He's disciplining you for your good and for His glory. And listen, parents, that's how you should discipline your children. If you discipline your children out of anger, that's wrong. The purpose of discipline is for their correction, their instruction, their good. And that's how God disciplines us. Next slide, Ken, if you can move me there. Hebrews 12, 6, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Now we've got a negative concept of discipline. That's, a bad, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Asa says six times a day, but I don't want a spanking. Like then stop doing things that get a spanking. I don't want to spank you, son. I don't want to have the old, this hurts me more than it's going to hurt you. You know I get it. God doesn't want to have to discipline us. 
but he does it for our good. And he's not doing it out of anger. He's not like, all right, get up here, boy. I'm going to wear your hair out. I'm going to talk through your teeth when you get mad. And that's funny, but I'm afraid that's the picture we have of God sitting up there saying, Jesus, do this again. In the midst of your sin, God says, no condemnation. Let me tell you why that's wrong. Let me discipline you. Let me correct you, reprove you, so that you might not walk in that foul sin anymore. The creek's up at home, guys. I don't want my kids down near the creek, and if they get down near the creek, I'm going to discipline them because I love them. I want you to understand that's how God sees you. And that's how He disciplines you. Not out of anger, not through clenched teeth. So yes, He will discipline you, but out of love. Are you afraid that you might get to the end of time and stand before God and Him decide that you just messed up too much? Afraid He might say, you know what? I know you trusted Jesus, but after you did, you were a wreck. You messed up so many times, your sins were so many, so often, so awful. You know what? Guilty. You're guilty. To hell with you. I damn you to hell. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of Romans 8. The biblical God, the God and Father of Romans 8 says, No condemnation. None. Not ever. Now and forever. No condemnation. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a good, good Father. What grace and peace come from this truth. Therefore, now, no condemnation. What a glorious, glorious truth. What an unfathomable reality to live in, to revel in, and to rejoice in. So, how now shall we live? In light of this great and exceedingly precious promise, how should we live? One simple application point today. One. In the midst of your successes and your failures, in the middle of your striving with your sinful nature, know, believe, reckon, and do the truth that Jesus Christ has absorbed the complete wrath of God for your sins. Know, believe, reckon, and do the truth that therefore now no condemnation. Live a life of freedom in the finished work of Christ. How, you might ask? Preach this truth to yourself. Preach it to each other. Preach it to the world over and over and over. Pray and ask God for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to help you see the truth of this passage. When you sin, and you will, you confess it, and He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What if I don't confess it? You know what? Still forgiven. It's a different subject. I wish I had more time for that, but I don't. When you sin and confess it, He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you rejoice in there being no condemnation for you. And you worship Him and He is glorified in you and through you even in the midst of your sin.
No, your sin is not all right, but there is no longer any punishment for you for it. Jesus took it for you totally and completely. Apply that to your life, Christian. But you may wonder, what if I don't know that I'm a believer? What if I'm not a Christian? Then let me be very clear. The Bible says the wrath of God abides on you, even now. As long as now is now, the wrath of God will remain on you. And on the final day, the wrath of God will be poured out on you in eternal measure as He swings the gavel and says to you, guilty. Because for you, your penalty has not been paid. You must pay it. You must pay the penalty for your sin. You must absorb the wrath of God yourself. And that is an awful, awful thought. So run to Jesus. Look to the cross of Christ and ask God to forgive you for your sins, which are many. And if you put your faith in the work of Jesus, by grace, God will consider your sins paid for, forgiven, and there will be no wrath of God left for you. Make no mistake, church, and if you're not a member of the church or part of the church, there are two kinds of people in the world those who will suffer the wrath of God and those who will not because of what Jesus did for them. That's it. You were not born a morally neutral agent who is choosing between these two sides. You were not born a basically good person who might someday, you know what, I decided today I'm going to give Jesus a try. That's not the way it works. The wrath of God abides on you or there is no condemnation. That's all there is in the world. Confess your sins. Confess your need for a Savior and look to Jesus to be that Savior and believe that God punished Him for your sins and then live the truth of the fact that therefore now no condemnation. In Christ, by Christ, for Christ. Now None not guilty. You know, in a way, I guess I'm just like Hillary Clinton. I did wrong. I deserved punishment. But I will walk free. No punishment. Ever. I did it. But I will not pay the price for it ever wow how do I feel about that let me pray God what do we say to these things <laughs> how do we approach you God as those who deserve your full wrath Why do we dare petition you for anything? No, we were not morally neutral. We were your enemies. And we were in blatant rebellion against you. 
And by grace, you plucked us from the very fires of hell. By grace, you justified us. You caused our eyes to be opened so that we might see the cross of Christ and the Christ of the cross. You helped us to see that my sins were upon him when he was being punished. And you breathed your breath, your life into me. You caused your Holy Spirit to dwell within me. And now, in the midst of my sin, in the midst of this sinful flesh which still rebels against you, you swing the gavel and say, there's no condemnation for you. Now, no condemnation. God, if there's any part of my heart that believes I deserve that, I pray that you would snatch it away. And I pray that I would fall on my knees in wonder and joy over a righteous God who looks at me and says, not guilty. And I come and I say, yeah, God, but I did this. And you say, not guilty. I say, yeah, God, but I'm selfish in my heart. And you say, not guilty. I say, God, but I love money. And you say, not guilty. God, I don't love my neighbor. Not guilty. God, I snapped at my wife. Not guilty. And as the enemy stands in your presence and hurls accusations against me, you say, not guilty. The body of sin has been done away with. There's no condemnation. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for Jesus Christ, His sacrifice upon a cross where my sins were finally and completely punished. You condemned sin in the flesh, and God, there's such riches in that phrase. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for the not guilty verdict that you've proclaimed over me and that rests on me even now. I just don't know what else to say. Help us, God, to walk in the truth of it now and forever. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction. Get away from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks, guys.